Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are God and there is no other. And we see Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ and by Your Spirit who shows us the things of Christ. We pray that as we study the federal vision that Your Spirit would be poured out upon us as a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and of the fear of the Lord as a holy anointing of discernment that we may distinguish between what is holy and unholy, between what is true and what is false, between what is righteous and what is unrighteous, between that which is conformed to the mind of Christ and that which is designed by Satan to distract and deceive. Lead us, we pray, in paths of righteousness for your own name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue our lesson on Pado communion and we've been considering the federal vision. We've been considering Doug Wilson. Last time we began this consideration of Pado communion with a brief quotation or a brief uh, consideration of Doug Wilson and his position on Pado communion by way of a quotation. And I'm going to read that quotation, and then we're going to dive back into this general refutation of Pado communion So just to reiterate the structure of the lessons here, uh, we desire to refute Pado communion from the Scriptures. And then after that, once we've had an opportunity to get that under our belt and understand that this is an unbiblical and contra-confessional position... Then we're going to look at Doug Wilson's version of Pado communion his arguments for it in greater detail. But uh, Doug Wilson's writings on this subject involve so many different things for us to analyze and consider that it makes more sense to just begin by refuting the position from the Scriptures first and then considering some of his idiosyncrasies later. So this is the second part of that general refutation of Pado communion and then God willing next time we will look at some of his more specific teachings on this subject. But just to remind us of Doug Wilson's general outlook on Pado communion, I'm going to read the quotation at the top of your handout. This is from the pink paperback volume, The Auburn Avenue Theology, Pros and Cons. We've been quoting from this uh, quite a bit. It's roughly 20 years old as a volume. But Doug Wilson says this, quote, Just a short time ago, another grandchild came to his first observance of the Lord's Supper. I know this is troublesome to some readers, but please bear with me for a moment. He is a year and a half old and doesn't really talk yet. But he worships with his family throughout our worship service, and he has a basic sign language catechism down. Where is Jesus? He pats his heart. Where is God? He points to heaven. Are you baptized? He pats his head. At the conclusion of our worship service, we all sing the Gloria Patri with hands upraised, which he used to do also. But as he began to notice the communion tray going by and he didn't get any, it began to distress him. About a month before he came to the table, he stopped raising his hands in the Gloria Patri and just watched. He was starting to learn how to observe as a detached outsider. 
When it was decided he should come to the table, he was carefully instructed in the meaning of the supper as he held the bread. When he partook together with his family, one of the first things he did was pat the heads of everyone around him. Mother, father, grandmother. We are all baptized, he said, discerning the body. At the glory of Patri, his hands shot up in the air. Glory to God indeed. So we believe the terms of the covenant, and we believe that God has promised us our children. We talk like we believe it because we do. End quote. That's Doug Wilson in his own words on his position of Pado communion. Uh, we contrasted this with the larger catechism, question and answer number 177, which answers in this fashion, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ in that baptism is to be administered but once with water to be a sign and seal of our regeneration and ingrafting into Christ and that even to infants, whereas the Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in Him and that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. So, Doug Wilson's pedo-communionist position is contrary to our confessional standards, and it's contrary to the unanimous perspective of confessional Reformed churches since the Reformation, and it's contrary even to the Western Christian tradition uh, really only the Eastern Orthodox have entertained Pado communion along with many other dangerous errors. So it's contra-confessional, and yet we're also trying to show that it's unbiblical. Now, last time we noted that it, with respect to some of the differences between the Lord's Supper and baptism, that the Lord's Supper is active, Every time there's a command in terms of baptism in the New Testament, it's passive. Be baptized. But in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper involves the communicant taking, eating, remembering, declaring, doing this, examining, and judging. We've seen that there's an uh, enhanced personal element in the Lord's Supper as opposed to baptism, which is given unto the actively professing believer and his or her household. There's oikobaptism, but by contrast, there's no oikocommunion in the New Testament. It's not examine your birth certificate, it's examine yourself actively, experientially, personally. We also saw that the Lord's Supper is covenantal. Of course, so is baptism. We don't want to say that baptism is not covenantal, but in the sense of covenanting, and taking and swearing an oath and, and giving one's consent, we said that the Lord's Supper is, by definition, consensual in that way. Jesus says to take the cup, which is the new covenant, which means to take the covenant. Psalm 50, to take God's covenant on our lips, to profess our allegiance to it, to profess our faith and obedience to it. And uh, that means we have to understand the new covenant, what it is, we need to understand our covenant of communicant membership, which expresses the various commitments that we're making in coming to the Lord's table as a communicant member. And as Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29 says, uh, 
when God's people gather together to take an oath or take a curse upon themselves, as we know the Lord's Supper is, 1 Corinthians 11, if we don't commune worthily, it becomes a curse because we've broken our oath and vow. When we take that curse and that covenant upon ourselves, Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29 says that Israel administered that only to those who had understanding, not to the infants who had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Now that does not contradict the increased accountability of those who are baptized in their infancy, but the increased accountability to those who are baptized in infancy is increased and enhanced far more to to an even greater extent in terms of those who then profess their faith and their purpose to serve God at an age of maturity. So it's consensual, it's an act of covenanting, and it is subjective and experimental or experiential. 1 Corinthians 10, 15 through 22 says that we're making a choice between the table of demons and the table of the Lord, that we're to flee, actively flee the, the table of demons and come to the table of the Lord, and at that table we have a communion and fellowship with the body and blood of Christ, which is an intimate, subjective, experiential reality by faith. And we believe in the real presence of Christ in the elements of the sacrament, such that though there's no transubstantiation or consubstantiation where we're eating and drinking Christ's physical body and blood in a physical way, uh, there, it, there is a reality that we are eating His flesh, drinking His blood by faith spiritually in union and communion with Christ, receiving His grace, His strength, His presence by the power of the Holy Spirit. As our standards say, spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably. And of course, that's only by an active exercise of faith that that kind of uh, mutual communion can take place. We've also seen that paedo-communion misrepresents the biblical characterization of early childhood development. We saw that in Deuteronomy 1.39, in Isaiah 7.15, and various other texts that children in infancy and at these periods of immaturity uh, do not have the full capacity to make distinctions between right and wrong, good and evil, in the same way that adults do. And we're told that's the same as it was for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who was not regenerate. He was perfectly generate, perfect in every way. Not unregenerate, but he had no need for regeneration. He was uh, conceived... Without, spit, without sin in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And yet, Isaiah 7 verse 15 tells us that Emmanuel had a point before he could know to choose the good and reject the evil. So there is an organic, ordinary course of childhood development in the early years. The Bible everywhere reinforces that common sense notion and more could be said, but you can refer back to the previous lecture. And so, paedo-communionists often misinterpret and misapply passages like Psalm 8-2, just because the Bible says that when infants praise God and sing the Psalms, that God's power is manifested, that somehow they should be coming to the Lord's table. That's a non-sequitur. It's a bad argument. The fact that infants sing Psalms 
which God has commanded them to do, does not in any way imply that they should be communing at the Lord's table and taking an oath and a curse upon themselves without that understanding. Um, and so, so much more could be said. Now, we move on to our fourth major point. Pado communion fails to appreciate the God-ordained pattern of participation in the sacramental feasts of the Old Testament. What do we mean by the sacramental feasts of the Old Testament? Well, God has, uh, even before the coming of Christ, commanded His people to assemble and gather not only for the word preached and sung and read, but also gathering together to eat a covenant meal with God and with His people. You can see that in some sense at the peace offerings where the children of Israel would bring their peace offerings, these animal sacrifices, and then they would share in the meat that came from that sacrifice, and they would eat of that altar, as it were. There's something of that pointing ahead to the sacramental feast of the New Testament. But fundamentally, we have the sacramental feasts of the Old Testament described for us in Leviticus chapter 23. These were the three seasons of feasts. There were seven feasts, but they occurred according to three major seasons of feasts. And so, for instance, the third season, which I think was around July, if I'm not sure, I think that's correct, where you had the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booths, the Day of Atonement. So you had a number of these festivals combined into one season. And they would have three of these throughout the year where God's people were commanded to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, and to celebrate and eat these covenant meals in the worship of God. Uh, Leviticus 23, starting in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations these are my feasts. Now, it's interesting here that there is a contrast then between the Sabbath and the feast. It goes on, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So, He's saying it's a holy convocation. That's why they had the synagogue eventually arose out of this, where they would gather in all the tribes, in their local areas on the Sabbath for probably singing of psalms and reading of the Old Testament as they had opportunity, perhaps hearing prophets preach the word to them. And so on the Sabbath day, that was a holy convocation, an assembly. Uh, but... There's no reference in verse 3 to it being a feast. They didn't have feasting. In fact, the, as we'll see in a moment, Deuteronomy and other parts of the Old Testament forbid them from having these sacramental, sacrificial feasts in their local communities. And so they were, they were not allowed to sacrifice at any other place other than the temple in Jerusalem at the centralized house of God. Those who for matters of convenience or whatever other interest they had, tried to sacrifice and celebrate these things on the high places, these localized worship stations throughout Israel, were condemned. 
by the, by the Lord and by the prophets. So they had their sacramental feasts, and this was taking place not every Sabbath in everybody's dwelling. So verse 4, now we see in contrast to the Sabbath, you have these feasts. These are the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. It goes on to describe these uh, various feasts. Passover is the first one at the beginning in the first month. And actually, I think what it is, thinking back to the reference I had to the Feast of Trumpets and of Booths, uh, it's in the seventh month. I think I said July, but it's not exactly corresponding to our calendar necessarily, but, um, but it was their seventh month. So I apologize for that. In their seventh month, they had that third and final season of feasts. But here you have uh, three seasons of feasts, beginning with the Passover. Then you can see, uh, at least the Bible I'm using here has subject headings at the beginning of the paragraphs, the Feast of first fruits, the Feast of Weeks. That's the second major season of feasts. And then the third season of feasts is the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So three seasons of feasts, roughly seven feasts in total. And in verse 4, we're told, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. King James says seasons. This is where uh, our Reformed forefathers got the idea of communion seasons. It's right out of the Bible. Um, Appointed seasons for sacramental feasting. Now, Uh, If we look at the pattern of the Old Testament, what we had was weekly instruction with the Word of God in the synagogue every week, every Sabbath, and seasonal feasts three times a year at the centralized location where there would be a sacrifice, an offering, and a feast of God's people in God's presence. That's the Old Testament pattern. Um, And again, our Reformed heritage is basically the same, whether it's the Scottish or Dutch tradition. You have the Word preached every week. You have three or four times a year, you have a communion season. And that's where they get that pattern from. In terms of these sacramental feasts, there were some that were stated, like the ones that we said here, but there were other ones that happened occasionally. And it's significant that in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, we're told that when the Lord revealed himself at Mount Sinai to Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders on, on the mount, uh, he revealed something of a visual revelation of his glory, verse 10. And then verse 11 we're told, so they saw God and they ate and drank. Now, that sacramental feast with Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and those are not the civil elders, those are most likely the elders of the priests, as that phrase is used from time to time in the rest of the Bible. These are the elders of the priests, and the high priest and Moses himself, who was, in a sense, a priest as well. 
So they go up on the mountain and they partake of this sacramental feast and they commune with God in this extraordinary way. The reason I mention this is that um, it demonstrates that sacramental feasts in themselves are not necessarily uh, such that every member of the covenant would participate. In this case, it's not even every person who professes faith. It's only the church officers that are partaking. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a pattern for us today. You know, the priest partakes and the, the cup is not given to the, to the people as the Catholics had done for so long. But I am saying that it demonstrates that not every covenantal feast or sacramental feast in the Old Testament necessarily was given in an unrestricted manner to all the members of the covenant. And so the stated meetings for a sacramental feast in Jerusalem were restricted, or there was a restrictive element. There's a distinction that's made. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 18. You can see here that there's a distinction that's made between the responsibility of men to attend these sacramental feasts and the responsibility of women to attend these sacramental feasts. We know with respect to circumcision that in the Old Testament it was only given to the male individuals, whether adults or infants, not to females. So that particular sacrament or sign of the covenant was limited. There was a restriction there uh, in terms of men versus women. And in terms of the sacramental feasts, it was a little different The women were permitted to come to the feast and participate. However, they were not required. And when you start to think about the requirement of coming from all over the promised land to Jerusalem, the the place where God would set his name at his tabernacle and eventually his temple, you can see that logistically why this was the case. Women were permitted to come. Mary and Joseph went together. We'll see in Luke chapter 2. But women were not required to come. And in fact, in the book of Exodus, we're told that God would protect those who stayed back home, that the pagan nations around them would not covet their land. And that God would protect the families that had to stay home, the wife and children that in many cases stayed home with the families. And when Jesus and the disciples went to the Passover, at that final instance before his death, it is interesting that a number of the women that are accompanying them from Galilee seem to be women that either do not have children or they have children that are quite a bit older and grown up. Um, And so perhaps that was common for, for empty nesters, in other words, to come, to be more likely to come to the feast in terms of a lot of the women that are mentioned there. In any event, women were permitted... They were not required. You see this in Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 18. All the males among the children of Aaron, uh, or excuse me, this is, uh, this is with respect to the preceding the offering. Let me say this first. All the males among the children of Israel may eat of this particular grain offering. So there's a distinction of men versus women. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Then you go on. Um, same thing in, in chapter 6, verse 26. 
Uh, it's only the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. So, so I'm a little getting ahead of myself, but these verses are showing us that there is a restriction in terms of who participates in eating these various sacramental feasts. In this case, it's only the priest. And then verse 29, all the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. Um, in addition to that, Exodus 23.17, this is where I was wanting to go with respect to men and women coming to the triannual feasts. Exodus 23.17, three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So there's the command for the men. They have to come. But the women are not required to come. They may come, but they're not required. And we see many, like I said, many godly women accompanying the disciples to that Passover just before the death of Christ. But they weren't required to come if they had other responsibilities with the children and so forth. It's the men, the males, that are required. Uh, in terms of, uh, in addition, let's consider the feast of Passover in particular. This was instituted by the Lord in Exodus 12. And in verse 11, it says that the manner in which this feast is to be observed and eaten uh, it's in this way, you sh thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, I don't want to um, milk this passage too much, but it does seem to indicate a certain level of maturity and manhood of the person who's fulfilling that command, right? So it presupposes in terms of setting an example for future generations, the emphasis is on the men, the mature men. Um, and, and again, we'll make some more distinctions later as well. But it's the males that were required to come. And Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. So that includes the Passover. It was men. It was emphasized to be mature men. In Exodus 12, verse 26, it says, it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. That's after the instruction from Moses there. But notice, the children are asking, what do you mean by this service? They're not saying, what do we mean by this service? It's not that these little children were participating in the Passover. Rather, they were asking, what do you mean by this? In other words, this was an opportunity for catechism, for asking and answering questions to instruct these children so they could get to the point like the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2, where he went to the temple, was instructed via question and answer by the religious leaders 
and all of that in connection with his first partaking of the Passover. Now, again, we're still in Exodus 12, verse 48. When a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So it's required that this person who's now converting, professing faith in Jehovah over against the the God of his fathers in his homeland, he comes and has all of his males circumcised. But it's him, the one who professed faith, that comes near and keeps the Passover. Uh, Numbers chapter 9. And verse 6, this is dealing with a celebration of the Passover in the wilderness. And it says, there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And then verse 13, but the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. So the men are required to come and partake of the Passover. They're examined by the priests to see if they qualify by way of these outward rituals of purification and the ceremonial laws, which of course are typological and symbolic of the spiritual cleansing and preparation and of the role of elders today in the church today to examine people for communion. Some individuals were found unqualified for the Passover and that had to be dealt with. But um, in some cases, like in this case, they had an excuse, they were on a journey or they they had to bury a loved one. So there were issues that had to be addressed there. But the person who is clean and doesn't have a legitimate reason, who doesn't come to the Passover, shall be cut off from among his people. So if you you look at this, it's very different from the statement that's made about circumcision in Genesis 17. There it says that the child who is not circumcised will be cut off from his people because the child does not bear the sign of the covenant. But here, in Numbers chapter 9, in terms of the judgment and the accountability for forsaking this sign and seal of the covenant, notice it doesn't say anything about his children. It says that he, the adult who professed faith, the man involved here, he will be cut off from his people if he forsakes the sacrament of the Passover. So again, you can see Even in the Old Testament, there's an emphasis on profession of faith, a mature profession of faith, and that's what leads to the obligation to come to the Passover. Um, And again, you can look at Genesis 17 and verse 4 to see how God deals in a slightly different way. For Genesis 17, 14, and the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So with respect to the entrance sign of the covenant, there is judgment on the infant for not receiving it. 
And I think if you think of Moses not circumcising his son, there's also when God went out in the wilderness to kill him, there's some sense there of accountability on Moses as a parent not giving the initiatory sign of the covenant to his child. But in terms of the covenantal feast, that sign of the covenant really emphasizes the duty of the mature professor of faith to come to the Passover. Now, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, in verses 1 through 6, listen to these restrictions and these ordinances. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. That's eventually Jerusalem, the temple. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. Now, in a moment, we're going to pivot to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but understand these two things are distinct. The Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, while they are closely knit together, they are distinct. They are distinct. Sometimes when the Lord refers to the first season of sacramental feasting in Israel, He'll just call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Other times, He'll just call it the Feast of Passover. So they're integrally connected, but they are distinct. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which begins the day following the Passover, involves something that has to be done throughout all the territory of Israel. The Passover is centralized at the tabernacle or temple, But the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in other words, the fact that they're not to have any leaven in their households, applies to all the territories throughout all the land of Israel. So the families throughout the tribes where the men all went to the Passover, even so, they would be back at home getting all the leaven out of their homes and observing that aspect of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, And of course, those who came to Jerusalem would do the same, but this is... Uh, countrywide. This is a national observance, whereas the Passover is, in, in very specific terms, a centralized observance among the children of Israel, and it's more restrictive as to who would ordinarily come and participate. Were children participating in getting the leaven out of the households in all the territories of Israel? Of course they were. But that's not the same thing as saying they went to Jerusalem and partook of the Passover at age seven. There's important distinctions to make here. Often, paedo-communionists just gloss over this and ignore the, the vast amount of biblical data on these points. Now, looking at verse 5 of Deuter- we're still in Deuteronomy 16, you may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord God gives you. So, The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's countrywide, but you may not sacrifice the Passover in your household. It's not a household feast. It's a centralized sacramental feast for all your males and whatever professing women desire to come as well. 
But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast and eat it in the place where the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work in it. And then verse 16 of the chapter, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses. So you see the distinction. It's the mature men and some of the mature women that come to the Passover as opposed to the countrywide feast of unleavened bread. And so we, we need to take that into account. When you're in Exodus 12 and you're reading about all these things that are done in the household, and the children seem to be involved with that issue of eradicating the leaven, Exodus 12, 15 and following, understand that's not specifically referring to eating the Passover. These are distinct ordinances. And when you look at Exodus 13, verse 5, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which He swore your fathers to, to give you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Okay, it goes on. Verse 8, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. So in terms of the feast of unleavened bread back in the territories and households of Israel, uh, no doubt the, the mothers, and when the fathers returned later, the fathers as well, would be instructing them concerning the meaning of their participation in eradicating the leaven and pointing them to the redemption that God had accomplished for His people. Uh, so much more could be said. I'm not going to go to all the passages. You know, if you're interested, you find more material on this in Exodus 34 and uh, Leviticus chapter 23. Now let's look at the example of Christ. And when we look at the example of Christ, we find that he followed the Old Testament pattern perfectly. That he was content to enjoy the weekly pattern of the Word of God in the synagogue, preached, read, and sung. And then he enjoyed the triannual seasonal sacramental feasting, the communion seasons, if you will, in Jerusalem. Even though he was from way up north in Galilee, he would travel down for those seasons of sacramental feasting. But he didn't begin doing that till age 12. Luke chapter 2 tells us in verse 21 that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the Old Testament pattern. His parents offered the necessary sacrifice at the temple. Then verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So Mary, as a particularly pious Israelite woman, and seems like, um, well, it seems very clear that she was accompanying Joseph on these trips to the Passover in Jerusalem. But we're told, verse 42, that when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, we know the custom of the Jews at the feast in the first century 
that it was at the bar mitzvah at age 12 that you would be examined by the religious leaders, questions and answers, and you would then receive your state of majority, your mature manhood. At age 12, um, I guess, you know, nowadays you come off mom and dad's Obamacare at age 26. Back then it was 12. Um, but that's when you were a man and you would pursue your calling and vocation and perhaps even start thinking about marriage not too long after that. So he's 12 according to the custom of the feast. We know the custom of the feast was to bring children, to bring the sons of Israel to the feast at age 12 and not before that. So Luke is very clear. They did this according to the custom of the feast. He came when he was 12 years old. There was not Pado Passover. Verse 43, when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. They're thinking, well, Jesus will be with the family. But it wasn't the family that was instructing the children in Israel, was it? It was the religious leaders. Uh, it, was, it was not a family-integrated church in that sense. Um, we're told, verse 45, So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. So that indicates he's listening and asking questions. What does that sound like? It sounds like a good student in a Sabbath school class, right? They're listening. They're on the receiving end of the teaching of the church, the teachers that were appointed in the Old Testament church. So he's being instructed. And we're told that he lingered with them. So we can assume that there was an, an allotted time for him to sit under the teaching ministry of the church where his parents were not present. Again, it's not family integrated. It's a church integrated family. They send their kids to be taught by the officers of the church. And he sits there and he listens to them. And then he asks questions in a respectful way. This is catechism, essentially. That he's being instructed in biblical doctrine by church officers without his parents present. And um, he lingered longer than he normally would have so it assumes that he'd been doing this throughout the Passover week. Now, all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So notice they're questioning him as well. They're catechizing him. They teach, he listens, he asks questions, and then they expect him to explain the meaning of the biblical doctrines, and they were amazed at what an amazing student that he was. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, and then of course the parents confront him, but you can see it's according to the custom of the feast. At age 12, as a mature man, he fulfilled his duty to come to the Passover. That's the example of Christ. And then in verse um, 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, which indicates that there was a gradual increase of his human knowledge according to his human nature. So he's an example for us in that sense. Now, uh, does the New Testament turn on its head this whole pattern of sacramental feasting and, and, and uh, 
of the, the custom of the feast of requiring a mature profession of faith at mature manhood. Does the New Testament change that? No, there's nowhere in the New Testament that changes any of those things. Um, now, we're not suggesting that churches have to only have communion three times a year any more than they need to have baptism on the eighth day, just like circumcision was on the eighth day. Um, these are general principles that we apply that you can see in general should be followed, but it's not the case that, there, that there's um, some you know, absolutely binding nature. But the principles remain in place moving into the New Testament. And so we see that Pado communion is contrary to the Old Testament example, and we've seen it's contrary to the biblical presentation of childhood development, and we've seen that it's contrary to the distinct nature of the Lord's Supper in comparison to baptism. Now, in closing, Pado communion has at least two unhealthy theological tendencies. First, and this is not meant to be an insult if somebody is a Baptist. I was a Baptist. Most of my, a lot of my favorite preachers are Baptists. So, But Doug Wilson is not a Baptist, and he claims to be uh, opposing all Baptistic tendencies in the church. And he really gets on his high horse about these things. He has some Baptist friends, but he, he's very much seeking to present people who oppose paedo-communion as if they're Baptists. They're just closet Baptists. They're just Baptists who sprinkle babies. We'll look at some of these quotes next time. Uh, he's always firing arrows at people who hold to credo-communion as if that nails us down to a credo-Baptist position. But paedo-communion in itself is Baptistic. First of all, in this perspective, all baptized members are communicant. That's, in principle, what paedo-communion would say, at least the way Doug Wilson frequently describes it. He thinks every member of the body of Christ who is baptized into the one body, who is part of the one body, symbolized by the one bread, therefore should be able to partake of the one bread. But that's baptistic, the idea that there's no distinction between communicant members and baptized members, as there is in a Presbyterian church, it's baptistic to say that all baptized members are communicant. That's what happens in a Baptist church. And Doug Wilson once was pastor in a Baptist church. He was raised Baptist, so we can't blame him for bringing this theological baggage along with him. He's essentially a Baptist in his view of the church. The only difference is he brings covenant children into the mix. So all baptized members are communicant, and in a Baptist church, they don't include the children, but in a Doug Wilson church, they do. But the, the same framework of the Baptist church is still in place that all baptized members are communicant in principle. Secondly, according to Doug Wilson's position, parents mediate between the church and the children. And as we're going to look at, but you can see at the top of your handout, the position of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, is that, quote, any baptized child may partake of the Lord's Supper, provided the parents instruct the child at each observation of the supper, and the child can heed the instruction, end quote. So their position is that essentially parents decide when their child is going to be taking communion. The parents decide whether the child can be instructed. And if you look closely at their constitution, they also say that with respect to any covenant children, 
they say it's when the parents say that it's time to baptize their child that you baptize the child. So they have Baptist families that will not have their children baptized and they remain members in good standing despite not baptizing their children. And then it says that it's their parents' job to come to the elders and say whether their kids are now ready for baptism, whether they profess faith, whether they're able to be instructed. The, the parents really do the work of church officers. The um, Christ Church Constitution does try to say, well, but the elders are overseeing it. But in practice, you read it, it's very clear that it's families and parents that mediate between the church and the children. That is not Presbyterian. That is not Pado-Baptist. Pado-Baptist churches believe that your child was baptized as a member of this church and is accountable to the discipline and instruction of this church and the officers of this church. And parents do not mediate. Obviously, we respect the sphere of the family, but in terms of spiritual ministry and spiritual keys of the kingdom, parents do not mediate between the church and the children that have been brought into the church through baptism. Parents don't decide when their children come to the table. Parents don't decide, other than maybe picking a date that you know, is suitable, parents don't decide when and whether their children are to be baptized. Um, those children are covenant children that belong to the Lord, and they are accountable in the RPCNA to church discipline. And, and, and the parents don't vote on the church discipline. And the parents don't determine what the church is going to teach their children. Um, the church determines that because it's God's church, not a family-integrated church. So it's Baptistic, and family-integrated churches were founded by Baptists. Big surprise. Secondly, it's nominalistic. It's nominalistic. Uh, the biblical command and responsibility to examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith, to examine yourself so that you can commune in a worthy manner, yeah, you see these things in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. When this is removed, when there's not an effort to be diligent to make your calling and election sure, when there's a de-emphasis on these things, and every covenant child comes to the communion table and participates in the sacramental feast against the example of Christ, against the explicit teaching of the Old Testament, what happens is, there is nominalism in the church. And we read the quote, I'm going to read it again, Ian Murray to Francis Nigel Lee in the 1980s, quote, the admission of all church children to the Lord's table is the death of experimental religion, end quote. When we stop being diligent to make it certain that we were effectually called, that our calling and election, in other words, God chose us, before the foundation of the world. How do we know that? We know that because we were converted. We were effectually called. 2 Peter 1, 3-13, we examine the evidence that we've been converted, that we've been brought from death to life, that we've been effectually called. And that gives evidence of our election from before the foundation of the world. When we stop evaluating that spiritual fruit with respect to profession of faith and coming to the Lord's table, what happens is, that children grow up with a presumption and an assumption that they are converted without ever having experienced the power of godliness. And that is uh, Satan's workshop. That's very, very dangerous. Um, 
and so much more could be said. Does anybody have any questions about what we've said so far from the Scriptures? Yes. Absolutely. And that's helpful. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and he who opens to me, I will come in and sup with him and commune with him. And then you see the emphasis at communion of that understanding and mature profession and conscious fellowship with the Lord, not uh, just, uh, again, examining your birth certificate or presuming something because of your covenant status. Any other Right. Yes. We, we need to, you know, and, and it's a balance. We need to show our children the love of God in Christ who has brought them into a Christian family and the opportunities and advantages they have and the privileges, but also recognizing their need to personally believe on Christ and be saved. That's a very difficult balance. And I would say, again, not trying to throw stones at, at some of these different views here, but, but it's almost an easy way out, either the, the Baptist or the Pado communionist route. It's almost an easy way out where we just have one category, one size fits all. Either we lop off the children or we include the children, but the Presbyterian view is seeking to wrestle with and reflect the delicate balance in the Scripture of taking our covenant children and their covenantal status seriously but also recognizing their need to personally trust in Christ. That's a hard balance. It's harder to be Presbyterian than it is to be paedo-communionist or, um, or Baptist or whatever. Now, we would like, you know, our goal is to make it as hard as possible to be paedo-communionist, and that's what, what we've sought to do here. Um, any other questions? All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would instill these truths in our hearts and minds, that you would instruct us, that we would even be as little children in terms of humility and teachable hearts, that we would have the knowledge of mature manhood and womanhood, that we would be not like children tossed about by every wind of doctrine, and yet that we would be your children receiving your teaching and walking in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.